Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world as king and yet clothed in humility. And I pray this morning as we look at our text of scripture that we would be reminded what kind of king Jesus really is. And I pray that in the the hustle and bustle of Christmas and the anticipation and the excitement around events happening tomorrow, that what would really rise to the surface in our minds and our hearts is the extraordinary nature of this story, that our God really did enter into our world, uh, that he really did become human like us and a baby, and he really did give his life on the cross that we would be redeemed from our sins. And he really did rise from the dead. And I pray that of all the things that could float to the surface in the Christmas season, that these are the things that would capture our hearts and our minds. So lead us and guide us as we look at your word this morning. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would move to minister to your people in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would love for you to open your Bible with me actually to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And you're, if, you're, if you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible, um, you could certainly uh, look this up on, uh, on your phone with an app, or you can grab one of our Bibles from our little welcome table over there. Today, we, as we consider the, the Christmas story and we think about Jesus, um, that child born to Mary in Bethlehem, the goal is really for us to think about Christ the King. So we've talked about Jesus being truly man and truly God and Jesus being our sacrifice. This morning I want to think about Christ as king. But one of the challenges I think that we face as we talk about the Christmas story in the season around Christmas is that we are thinking about a story that's really all too familiar to us. Um, We can almost think that this story is dull, Christmas is an exciting time, right? It's a time filled with family and fun and anticipation, particularly if you have little kids around the house. There's lots of energy and excitement and buzz. Lots of people, I think, look forward to this time of year. But imagine with me for a moment if uh, when Christmas came around, every year you received again and again the very same present, Right, So imagine back, you're seven years old. I don't know what that toy that you wanted was when you were seven. For me, it was Legos. And I come running out Christmas morning under the tree, and I tear open that present, and it's that Lego set that I was really, really longing for. And of course, that would be thrilling, right? As a seven-year-old, to get the gift that you asked for and you were longing for, that would be wonderful. But now imagine... The next Christmas rolls around, right? You're eight years old, you come running out to the tree and you open that present and it's literally the exact same Lego set that is now sitting in your closet unplayed with. And then the next year you come and you unwrap that present and it's the same thing. The year again, the present is the same. And now suddenly imagine yourself in your 40s You don't run to the Christmas tree anymore because you're still stretching out those aches and pains. But you get to the tree and there's the present with your name on it. And you open that thing up and it's the same Lego set again. And you've already got now 33 of them in the closet sitting there unplayed with, obviously, right? 
It's bad enough that we as humans tend to get bored super easily, even with really, really entertaining things, because we live in an entertainment-saturated culture. But to receive the same gift year after year really puts you at risk of being unappreciative, thinking that it's bland and not exciting anymore, turning your heart cold to all of it. It becomes too familiar. And this is the danger I think that we face at Christmas each year, isn't it? I mean, in the midst of all of the excitement around the season, what is the climax? The climax is the story that we hear year after year, that God became man and dwelt among us in the child called Emmanuel. And so we can be tempted to fail to see the wonder, the mystery, the beauty of it all. So we're going to talk about what it means that Christ is king this morning. But before we do that, I want to try and maybe restore for us for a couple of minutes a little bit of that wonder, that excitement about the story of Christ born at Christmas. Because there's some really shocking and beautiful truths for us to meditate that we shouldn't miss. So here are three extraordinary things about the birth of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. First, here's Jesus, our king, born in a stable, right? You know that part of the story, but what other child born to royalty in any period of history on any continent, what king or queen has ever been born in a stable? You could scour the history books and I guarantee you, you would not find a single one. Now, we don't have kings or queens in our culture anymore. Probably the closest thing that we would have to this would be something like a celebrity. So try and imagine Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Kim Kardashian giving birth to their child in the barn next to the filthy cows. It's never going to happen, right? Because that would be so far beneath them. It would be the talk of the century. It would be a global embarrassment that a child with that kind of privilege would be born in that kind of situation. And yet Jesus, who is the king of all creation, was not embarrassed to be born in a stable. You know, some people reject Christianity because they have this perception of the Christian God as one who demands worship and they think this makes him proud and narcissistic. But our God is so humble that though he was king above all other kings, he came into our world amidst sheep and donkeys and the stinky hay of a barn. God could have easily provided for his beloved son at least a hotel room or a palace or even just a warm, comfortable house. But God instead chose a barn because the greatness of this king is magnified in his humility. The second thing I want to mention is that Christ, our king, was born to a virgin. Now, obviously, this truth is a miracle and one that we as Christians hold fast to. It means that this child was born supernaturally, not by mere human means or the will of man, but ultimately by the will of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth proves to us that Jesus was divine, not merely human, but fully God. And it's true, we believe it because the Bible tells us so. But place all of that aside for just a moment. 
If you read the Gospels closely, one of the things that you see there in the way that the people from Nazareth and the Pharisees interact with Jesus is that these people that Jesus knew throughout his life, they did not believe that this man was born miraculously from a virgin. They did not accept the claim that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, which means that for all of his life, think about this, Jesus was perceived as the bastard child of a man and woman who could not control themselves before their marriage vows were complete. A husband and wife who failed to keep their purity. Now, we, of course, know that that isn't true, because we accept what the scriptures teach us about the virgin birth of Jesus. But this is the reproach that hung over the head of Christ throughout the duration of his life. And we probably each know how vicious the gossip can be around a scandalous situation. But Jesus, our king, was willing to go through all of his life quietly bearing the reproach, of the scandalous lies that surrounded his miraculous birth, so great is the humility of Jesus that he would allow his honor to be slandered his entire life, bearing up under the weight of the false shame that would be heaped upon him for the story of his birth. And so though a king truly born of a virgin by the power of God he bore the shame of this lying title thrust upon him by the ignorant cruelty of others. Bastard child of an unchaste woman. That's the God that we call king. Third, we see the wonder and humility of our God in the fact that he was born to rule over all of creation, all that he made with his rightful title as Lord of all. But he came into a creation, this creation as king, knowing full well that the creatures that he made would reject his rightful authority. That we, as creatures made by his hands, would be so arrogant as to refuse to call him king, though he is indeed king. I mean, think about this. If you knew that if you baked some cookies for your neighbor to go give them a Christmas gift and you knocked on the door, that they would open that door and slap you and then spit in your face and slam the cookies down on the ground and close the door on you after insulting you cruelly, would you bake the cookies and take them over there? Like if you knew that's how they would respond to your gift, would you go give it? Certainly not, right? And yet, that's the kind of rejection that Jesus experienced, except on a minuscule scale, really incomparable to what Jesus experienced. The creator of the world came into the creation that he made by his own power, and the people that he made for his glory, made for affectionate relationship with him, rejected him. So hopefully these three points allow us at the beginning of my message here to just think for a moment how wonderful the Christmas story is. Hopefully they bring a little bit of fresh perspective. This is a true story, but it should always remain wonderful and amazing to us. It should never become commonplace in our minds because it is wonderful. 
So you've probably had your Bible open now to Matthew 28 for a long time. You're wondering when are we going to get here? Let's read this together. We're going to read verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, at Christmas, we tend to think about Jesus, the baby born to Mary in Bethlehem. But it's good for us to remember why that child came, why he was born. He came to live a perfect and righteous life, sinless and wholly devoted to God. He came to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He came to rise from the dead, to destroy the power of death. And he came to establish, as we see here, his authority, his right to rule and reign in the hearts of people, but not merely in the hearts of people over all of heaven and all of earth. Christ came to declare his authority to rule over all things. Now, I don't know about you, but people with authority make me nervous. Uh, my wife would describe herself as more of a rule follower. I am not, I would not describe myself so much as a rule follower. Because people with authority make me nervous. It doesn't take long in life before you realize that authority can be a really problematic thing, right? People with authority can be very dangerous people. And this is why we have a word authoritarian, because authority often comes with improper use or abuse. An authoritarian is a person who uses their authority really for their own good in order to enforce a strict and absolute obedience to their commands. A synonym is the word totalitarian, somebody who exercises total control over other people. And that's what authority all too often looks like in our world, isn't it? Somebody using their power for their own benefit to control other people. Parents can be too harsh, sometimes even abusive in the way that they treat their children. Teachers can be cruel in the way they treat their students. Police officers can sometimes go on power trips and mistreat the very people they're supposed to be protecting. Bosses threaten and manipulate. Governments are known to more than, more than occasionally harm their own citizens. And so the simple truth is that because authority is all too often misused, we generally reject the idea of authority. We are opposed to this idea. We despise words like submission. How do you like that word? The sinful human heart chases after a sort of absolute autonomy, self-governance, freedom. And so we rebel against people who would attempt to direct our decisions or make choices for us. And in a way, I think that makes sense in a broken, sinful world like our world, doesn't it? That we would be skeptical of 
authority and prone to reject it and rebel against it because all too often we've seen the people with authority do bad things with it. So what I want to do this morning is take a little bit closer look at what it means that Jesus is our king. What kind of authority does he have? And if he has that authority, why should we trust him as king? Why should we submit to him? So I actually have uh, eight statements about the authority of Christ, our King. And a little bit like I did a couple weeks ago, I'm going to throw these up on the screen for you. And I promise, like I did a few weeks ago, I will move relatively fast. And I'm going to progressively move to answering this question that I just mentioned. How can we trust the authority of Jesus? How can we be sure that if we submit ourselves to him, we won't be abused or taken advantage of or mistreated? So be patient. I'm moving to answer that question as we get closer to the end, okay? So first, the authority of Christ our King is an absolute authority. Look here at verse 18 of Matthew 28. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He does not say some authority. He does not say religious authority has been given to me. He does not say Christian authority has been given to me. Jesus claims an absolute sovereign right to rule over everything. All things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. And yeah, right now we might look around at the world and see people and nations and institutions that are opposed to Jesus clearly not submitting to him as an authority, but beyond the veil of what our eyes can perceive in this material world, the claim of Jesus remains true. He has authority over all things. Philippians 2.10 tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will eventually bow, every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's simply no purpose in even trying to escape the authority of Jesus because his authority is unquestioned. Whether it be by willing choice to bow or whether it be by the sheer weight of his glory as they see him in his resurrection power on judgment day, every knee will bow. No person will be able to dispute the right that Jesus has to rule over everything that he has made. Now, most people will still choose to rebel against Christ, and for a time, it may appear as if they are succeeding in this life, but their efforts to do so will ultimately be futile because Christ already rules. Even those who rebel against him, the fact of the matter remains, Christ is their Lord, whether they like it or not. And in the end, his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this child born in the stable, as meek and mild as he may be, as he lays there in the crib or in the arms of Mary, he is still our conquering king. Already his kingdom is established. Already his authority is sure. Second, the authority of Jesus is an authority to command We see it there in verse 9 when Jesus says, go therefore. 
So because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore he is in command of all things. He commands the sun and the lightning, the winds and the waves, the fog and the snow. They are all his agents doing his bidding. He commands evil spirits and he commands angels and they obey. He is in command of nations and people, rich and poor, powerful and weak. And although, again, it is true that for a time, Christ has permitted in this world the rebellious hearts of people to reject his commands and do as they will and not as he wills, already there is a day that is set when that rebellion will be brought to an end and the absolute will of God shall be done on earth as it is done perfectly in heaven. Revelation 11 says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Third, the authority of Christ expects obedience. We see it there in verse 20, where Jesus commands his disciples, go and teach people to observe all that he has commanded. In other words, Jesus expects that we would keep his commands because he is our king. That is the expectation he has for you and for me. And this is why the wrath of God will ultimately come upon mankind. This is why the nations and why people will be judged. Because it is the expectation of the king that people do what he commands. And for those who obey, there will be blessing and there will be reward. And for those who disobey, who refuse, who rebel, there will be wrath and judgment. And because Jesus is king with all authority in heaven and on earth, he has the right to expect obedience to his commands, doesn't he? Just like it is my right in my home to expect obedience from my children when I say things like, go therefore. <laughs> now it's one thing for us to look out there in the world where rebellious and sinful people reject the will of God and for us to think that they're foolish for their disobedience and rebellion against the commands of Jesus. But why even engage in that endeavor? Let us instead look inward. For us who call ourselves children of God, let us eval evaluate our own lives. Let us think about the implications of Jesus' authority over our hearts so that we might bring our actions, our minds, our hearts, our lives into conformity with everything that Jesus taught us. We call ourselves Christians, which means that we belong to Christ. We acknowledge his authority to rule. He is our king. That is what it means to be a Christian. So then we of all people should put into practice obedience to Christ. And there's much reason for us to be joyful and encouraged as we seek that obedience because the fourth thing we learn about the authority of Jesus is that his authority is a loyal authority. 
It comes with loyalty to us, his servants. Look again at verse 20. Jesus makes this wonderful promise. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is where we begin to kind of shift and answer the question, why should we trust the authority of Jesus when so many other authorities have been abusive? How can we trust this man without fear? Well, here we begin to see Jesus is relentlessly committed to us. Relentlessly. He is with us always. He has promised that he will never leave or forsake us. His authority is not directed over us in such a way as to abuse or harm or manipulate or get anything from us whatsoever. His authority over us is only to bless us. This is the king who gave his life as a sacrifice to prove his love for us. This is the king who commands, but he commands only after he himself has done everything that he expects from us. So that what he does and what he commands are the same thing. Isn't that astounding? This is why we despise so many people in authority, isn't it? This is why we're skeptical of them and skeptical of their intentions. Because what they say and what they do are two totally different things. Like these climate tyrants who would make laws against you having a car or an air conditioner while they hop on their luxury jets to fly between their luxury mansions. Right? Doesn't that infuriate you? They command others to serve and sacrifice while they themselves demand to be served. And the hypocrisy is intolerable. But not so with Jesus. Jesus commands us to lay down his life. But before he commands, he laid down his own life. He has promised loyalty to us that he will be with us always. And all that he commands us is not for his benefit. It's for your benefit. It's for your good. All that he commands flows from a perfect consistency between who he is and what he does and what he says. That's astounding. So we can trust his authority because it's pure and it's true and it's always knit together with his faithful devotion to us. Now for our last four statements about the authority of Christ, we need to look at a different passage of scripture. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you're new to the Bible, there's no shame in using the... Uh, table of contents. It's in the middle of your Bible. If it helps, page 856 on my Bible. <laughs> Isaiah chapter And we're going to pick up in verse 6. We're just going to read verses 6 and 7 here of Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, this is another kind of classic Christmas Bible passage that tells us about who this child Jesus is. We see that the government shall be upon his shoulder, which is just another way of saying that he will have all authority. And so my fifth point here is that the authority of Christ our King is an authority that brings peace. You can see it there in verse 7. If we think about the authority of somebody like Vladimir Putin, what does his authority bring? Well, you know it brings war and death and strife and pain and suffering. That's what most human authority, when exercised with an absoluteness, brings. Like so many other rulers through history. But not so with the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. Why can we trust him? Because we see that he will wield his authority to establish peace. To end war. To heal hearts. To bring an end to human suffering. Jesus rules for the good of those who submit to him. That they might have peace with God and peace in their souls. Sixth, we see the authority of Christ our King is an authority that brings justice. I think we talked about this recently. Friends, there's little to no justice in the world that we live in. Almost none. Right now, child abusers and thieves escape punishment. Rich people exploit poor people. Warmongers profit from death. Babies are murdered by their mothers. Perverse men peddle pornography under the guise of freedom. And politicians enrich themselves at the expense of the very people that elected them to serve them in that role. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Injustice is everywhere. And you and I are mostly powerless to do anything about it except sit around and complain. But Jesus has already proven his fierce and absolute commitment to justice. And you know where he did it? He did it on the cross. When he hung on the cross and he died for your sins and my sins, what Jesus did is display his absolute contempt for evil and injustice. Why did he die? He died so that perpetrators of injustice, like you and like me, let's not kid ourselves and pretend like we're different from all the other people. Jesus died so that perpetrators of injustice, like you and like me, might receive mercy in place of wrath. We are guilty of injustice. It is our injustice that put Christ on the cross. But Christ died so that in place of wrath, we might receive mercy. And so the authority of Christ our King will bring to the world perfect justice, where evil and sin will be rightly judged and punished accordingly, and all that is good will be praised and rewarded as it should be. And this justice will be nothing like the fake social justice that's so vogue in our vacuous culture, 
It will be the establishment of all that is truly honorable and virtuous and beautiful and good. Everything that is wrong with the world will be made right. Which brings us to the seventh point of our authority. The authority of Christ is an authority that brings righteousness. In other words, his authority will establish what is right. The world is so wrong. It's so bent. It's so corrupt. Don't you feel that in your soul? But think about this. The authority of Jesus is so great that he will take bent lines and he will draw straight. He will take all the crookedness of our world and he will make it right. All the world will be tested by the fire of his refining nature and all the dross of depravity in the end will be burned away so that only what is pure and what is pleasing and what is right remains. And don't you long to be under the authority of Jesus Christ who can cleanse you from all that remaining sin that still harasses you so often that you might be pure and righteous, full only of goodness and holiness. Doesn't your heart and soul burn for that day? Don't you long for the righteousness of Christ? For everything in you and everything out there to be made right. And finally, we're told that it's the zeal of the Lord that will do all of this, which is to say that the authority of Christ is a zealous authority. Zeal is just another word for passion or another word for love. If you are zealous for something, you love that thing. So how can we trust ourselves to the authority of Christ? Well, because he is a loving authority. Jesus is zealous for you. He is relentlessly committed to you. Not as a mere feeling like you feel that ebbs and flows, kind of depending on the day or the hour or the state of your mind. No, God's love for us is a zealous resolute, unchanging, unfading love. It does not ebb and flow with some kind of moodiness in the heart of God. And so we don't need to doubt or question the love that Christ has for us. We already know how far he would go to prove it. How far would you go to prove your love for something? Well, we know how far Jesus went. First, he became man. He humbled himself in that stable. He came to a people who would mostly reject him. He bore the reproach of being man. But more than that, he suffered death. All to prove the depth of his love for those who would turn to him and place their trust in him and no longer rebel against his authority. So God's loving authority, it's, it's there in the face of that Christ child who took on flesh to bring us this great message of God's love. God invites us to repent and turn to him, to not be under wrath, but to receive mercy. And so God's loving authority is there in the face of the child, but also there in the blood-stained cross where Jesus embraced death to demonstrate his devotion for you and for me. Now, having said all this, I would ask you, what other alternative do you have to submitting yourself to Jesus? 
Like that's one choice. You can submit yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ. But what other choice really is there? If you don't want to submit to the authority of Jesus, then what other option is there? Well, I would say there's really only one other option. You can reject his authority and you can claim your own authority, like Satan, that great snake, tempted Eve in the garden. And we know how that went, didn't it? Don't we? We can see how that has worked out. We can see all around us in humanity in general what happens when man casts off the authority of God. It comes with things like death and despair and sadness and misery and wars and abuse and tyrants and exploiters and criminals and subjugators. It comes with corruption and cruelty. Why is the world the mess that it is? It is precisely because man has said, we don't want the authority of Jesus. We want to be our own authority. And let's not even talk about the world. Let's talk more on a personal level. When you cast off the authority of Jesus Christ, how does that go for you? Haven't you experienced it? It tends to come with things like addiction and depression, intemperance and sensuality relational strife and heartache, suffering and pain, loneliness and folly. And the truth is that if you want to cast off the authority of Jesus Christ in this life for a time, he actually will let you. He is not a totalitarian or an authoritarian. But one day you will bow Yes, for now, you can reign as the authority over your life if you so choose. But because your power and your authority are ultimately weak and brief, the choices that you end up making in rejecting Jesus will not lead you to beauty or goodness or virtue or truth. They will lead you further into the tyranny of sin. And there will be self-destruction at the end of that path. So why not give yourself to the authority of Christ the King instead? Now that you know what his authority is like, let his zeal and his love consume you. Receive his peace and his righteousness. Trust in his loyalty and live in obedience. Receive his goodness and virtue. To me, it seems like really there's no other option than to trust the authority of Jesus. Because this is what's best in life. It's what's best in death. But also because his authority is already established. My friends, you cannot escape it. Try though you might. Christ has come as king. He is coming again to reign. And so may we trust ourselves to his authority. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the zeal with which you have accomplished our salvation. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who gave his life as a sacrifice so that we might be redeemed. And we thank you that in his humility, we actually perceive his authority, that though he was willing to lay down his life, he also had the power and authority to take it up again. And so he rose from the grave. And we thank you that because he has risen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. 
God, I pray that in response to this, we would be people who willingly submit to Jesus as Lord and trust him as king. I pray that that would bring us peace, that we would be comforted by your zeal, your love for us, and that we would ultimately be made people who share in your righteousness. We thank you for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.